Good morning, beloved. Uh, let's turn now to God's word. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for speaking to us. We thank you for how your voice cuts through the noise. Comes to us, we pray, with clarity, conviction, and power. And we pray that you would speak to us this morning uh, about our bodies and about your glory. Help us to understand the connection between what we do with our bodies uh, and your glory. Feed us from your word and change us, O oh Lord. Change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you join us for the first time, you're joining us in a series that we have called Embodied. We have embarked on this series because we think the pandemic gives us a unique time to sit with who we are as embodied persons, to come to know something about our, our physical flesh and blood, and to think about it not just as a matter of biology, but to think about it as a matter of theology, to think about the theological meaning of the body, and to have that shape then our identities and how we live for God. In the last couple of weeks, we were thinking about marriage and celibacy, and sex in marriage, and abstinence, and celibacy, uh, and the body, and, and what the body points to, how it prophesies, really, how it's a sign of our uh, union and consummation and fellowship with God. Marriage points forward to our marriage with Christ in glory. Singleness points forward to our satisfaction and wholehearted devotion uh, to Christ in glory. And so we've been thinking about what it means to read the signs of our body. Well, today we want to continue to think about sex. We want to think today, though, about sexual immorality and about the body and about what that means theologically. And I hope that as we think about God's word in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, um, what we learn here at, in terms of a theology of the body, I hope that it so settles in our hearts that it would make sexual immorality unthinkable for us, for all of us, for each of us, utterly unthinkable and uh, even abhorrent. Now, we need to understand, as one writer puts it, that sex is not just about sex. The way we understand and express our sexuality points to our deepest held convictions about who we are, who God is, who Jesus is, what the church is or should be, the meaning of love, the ordering of society, and the mystery of the universe. So sex, too, is a sign that points to the meaning of all of those things, that reveals what we believe most deeply about the meaning of all those things. So it's important that we get our theology right here so we understand sex theologically and so that we then understand how to steward it, how to enjoy it, how to express it, how to live as God would have us to. Again, to do that, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. And I want us to consider two points as we look at those eight verses. First of all, I want us to consider the Trinitarian theology of the body that makes sexual immorality unthinkable. 
We're going to look at Paul's theology of the body in 1 Corinthians 6 and how that theology should make sexual immorality unthinkable. And then number two, we want to consider three actions to safeguard our bodies and to safeguard our sexual chastity, our sexual purity. Three exhortations, applications in the text that would help us with that. So look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. And do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Or as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let's think about this first point. A sound theology of the body makes sexual immorality unthinkable. You see what the Corinthians were thinking in verses 12 and 13. Uh, Most commentators think Paul is quoting some sayings that have become popular in the church in Corinth. And that first saying he quotes twice, all things are lawful for me, all things are lawful for me. They seem to be saying with that that phrase that I, I can do anything I want. Right, And maybe they are perverting grace. They're taking the grace of God in Christ and turning it into a license to do whatever they wish. And in that second saying that the food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, well, that seems to be suggesting that whatever our bodily desires are, uh, if, if, if our bodies can meet and match those desires, well, then that's what the body is for. And you see how that kind of thinking, I can do whatever I want, and I should satisfy my bodily desires, you can see how easily that flows over into sexual immorality uh, and sexual promiscuity. If there are no restrictions on our freedoms and there's nothing beyond just satisfying bodily urges, well, then that's going to tend towards sexual sin. And Paul checks that thinking. Paul checks that thinking by saying, hey, there are three other things you need to think about. Number one, all things may be lawful, but number one, not all things are helpful. So we need to be asking ourselves the question, is it helpful whenever we're considering something that we think we're free to do? Number two, we should not be dominated by anything. So the question becomes, when we're considering any option that we think is lawful, that we're free to do, is this something that will enslave me? Because the irony is, some things that we are free to do, in the act of doing them, they take away our freedom. Getting addicted to pornography, getting addicted to sexual immorality of various sorts, that's an enslaving experience. 
Then number three, as it relates to the food and the body and the stomach, Paul says, wait a second, there's something beyond just satisfying the bodily appetite. There is a God who will destroy both body and food. So what's ultimate is not pleasing our bodies. What's ultimate is pleasing our God. So we got to ask ourselves that third question, will this please or displease God? So Paul is checking the kind of cultural thinking that leads to sexual immorality. And then he wants to turn and give them now a theology of the body that should help them think differently about sexual immorality. And he begins that in verses 13 and 14. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So the first fact it gives in his theology of the body is that the body is meant for God. Matthew Lee Anderson writes, The impulse that we own our bodies and can do with them as we please runs deep. It is one of our tacit, that means unspoken, world-shaping beliefs that few of us ever bring to the surface, but nearly everyone affirms. In other words, everybody's walking around thinking, my body belongs to me, and I can do with it what I want to. Even if they never speak that out loud, it is shaping their whole world and life view. That's the way we tend to think. That's the way the Corinthians appear to be thinking. 1 Corinthians 6 is going to bring that to the surface and begin to challenge it with God's truth. So in reality, notice in verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. Sexual immorality there comes from the Greek word porneia. And that word refers to all kinds of sexual immorality, fornication, adultery, um, bestiality, pedophilia, homosexuality, pornography, even crude sexual joking. The body is not meant for those things. It is not designed for that, and it is not actually satisfied by that. Instead, notice, the body is meant for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. That means our body, number one, belongs to God, and number two, that word meant, it means our body is only satisfied in finding its pleasure with God. And in the same way, God is meant for our bodies, that, that God takes satisfaction and pleasure in our bodies as, as bodies he designed and bodies that point to him. He rejoices over us in love. You see, truthfully, the only thing that properly and ultimately fits our body is meant for our body, satisfies us in this embodied life, is God. I couldn't help but think about Adam in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Adam, as you know, is made first, and God brings him all the animals. And Adam names all the animals. And as he names each animal, he discovers each time over and over and over again that nothing is like him and therefore suitable for him. Until God makes Eve. And Adam says, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He's saying, here is one who is like me, who is suitable to me, who is fit for me. And Adam and Eve themselves are pictures then for us and of us. 
It's as if we are naming everything, food, drink, alcohol, uh, sexual pleasure, entertainment. We are naming everything in life, ruling them out as not fit for us, not like us, until we find God in whose image and likeness we are made, for whom we are meant. And when we find him, then, then we find that purpose. Because the first fact to get right here that keeps us as thinking biblical Christians from sexual immorality is this fact that we, our bodies, are meant for the Lord. Our body is not our own. And it's meant for pleasure in God. It is designed for God to take pleasure in us. And so we cannot misuse our bodies in sexual sin as though they belong to us. The body's enjoyment of God and God's enjoyment of the body is a follow-up point, a corollary point. That pleasure, that enjoyment, is meant to be eternal. It's meant to last forever. That's why I think Paul comes to the issue of the resurrection in verse 14. It's striking. If you don't have a good theology of the body, this section of 1 Corinthians 6, it seems like Paul's just sort of rambling all over the place. Why, why do you bring up the resurrection right here? Well, the resurrection is God's way of receiving back the bodies as he had designed them to be, made for eternality with him, made to find pleasure with him forever. The resurrection is God defeating death, the death of the body, so that in the resurrection of the body, we can keep covenant with each other, eternal communion between God and his people forever. The body was meant for the Lord. It's meant for him forever. That's true of your body, beloved. It's true of my body. And so the question becomes, how often do we think each day, my body is meant for the Lord? And the Lord is meant for my body. Or are we more prone to live life thinking, this is my body and I'll do with it what I want to? You see, one form of thinking is going to lead us to a disordered relationship with our bodies. And in fact, will lead us to serve our bodies as if our bodies are God. To give it its every appetite. But the other orientation will lead us to, to put our bodies beneath the control of the Lord and, and, and lead us to use our body in service to the Lord. And that's that way of thinking that begins with this body belongs to God. It's meant for him. And he is meant for this body. How often do you think that about your body, about your person? That's fact number one. Fact number two. The body is joined with Christ. Your physical body, my physical body, is joined together with Christ's body. So it's deeper than just God owns us. It is, in fact, God is also with us, joined together with us. Look at verses 15 and 16. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. But do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Or as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. 
Now follow the, the stunning logic of, of this section, these rhetorical questions that uh, the Bible lays out for us. See, first of all, how the Bible moves from our physical bodies to Christ's spiritual body, making them one. He says there in verse 15, your bodies are members, that is, body parts of Christ. Your bodies are body parts of Christ. That's a spiritual fact and a spiritual reality. And we must learn then to read the sign, interpret the theology of our bodies. We must look at ourselves and think this hand, this arm, this torso are, are a finger in the body of Christ. This head, neck, shoulders, legs, we are, we are a body, yes, but this physical body is a nose, an eye, or an ear in the body of Christ. You, you will know that Paul uses that same imagery in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 when he's talking about spiritual gifts and how we fit together. Here he's using that imagery now in application to the question of sexual immorality. Your whole body is a part of Christ's body. Now, if that's true, that our bodies are actually Jesus' body parts, then there's a question that flows in the Bible next. And that question is, how can we then take our body, which is Christ's body part, and join it then in sexual immorality to a prostitute? How can we knowingly do such a thing? Well, well, now, for that to hit us the way it ought to hit us, you got to be still long enough to think about the imagery here. you got to kind of get a picture in your mind of what Paul is actually saying, what the Bible is actually saying. That in sexual immorality, your body, which is a body part of Christ, is actually join together with a prostitute. That has to sit with us until there's a kind of ill, until there's a kind of repulsion, uh, and until we imagine that image and that image comes home to us in, in all of the distasteful uh, and uncleanness that we often associate with prostitution. How can we take our bodies and do that with Jesus' body? Paul gives the answer at the end of verse 15. Never, never. He's, he's astonished. He's repulsed. He's, he's abhorred. Never should we ever do that. It's unthinkable. This is why I say a good theology of the body should make sexual immorality unthinkable to us. Union with Christ should make sexual sin an impossibility in the mind of the Christian. Because here's another reality. The one we lay with is the one we're joined with. The one we lay with in sexual immorality is the one that we were actually joined with. Verse 16, Paul says that to commit sexual immorality, lie with a prostitute, um, is to become one with that other person. So this brings us really to uh, an implied.
applied definition of sex. In, in every sexual act, there's what Pope John Paul II calls a communion of persons. And there's something more going on than just a bodily interaction. Yes, the, the bodies are joined together, but, but more than that, the, the bodies being our persons uh, are, 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 is also indicating a, a communion, a fellowship, an exchange, a sharing of persons. Pope John Paul points out that, that this is so in part because our bodies, and sex in particular, is reflecting something of the fellowship of the God, the Trinitarian God, in whose image we are made. So sex is more than just a physical activity. It is a sharing, a communion of our very persons. And Paul says, now, this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. You see, he quotes that there. The text about marriage in one flesh. The man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one. Now, normally, we use that text in application to marriage. And, and in that application, we use it approvingly. But notice now, Paul is now using that text in application to sexual immorality, to being joined together with a prostitute. So in the one-body act of sex, the same communion of persons takes place, whether it is between a husband and a wife in a covenant of marriage, or whether it is between a John and a prostitute in the contract of prostitution. One we lay with, we become one with. So, sex as a communion of persons not just the joining of bodies, even includes the transactional act of prostitution. We'll unpack this a little bit. Laying with a prostitute is not about love, and it's never meant to be. It's a business transaction. Money is exchanged for the use of a body. In prostitution, then, the body becomes a commodity to be priced and sold and consumed. It is perhaps the, the worst form of objectification that we can think of, both of the prostitute and the john. It is objectifying the body and making the body merely a, a vehicle for pleasure and for profit. Even in that context, there is then a sharing of self, a communion of persons, a joining of bodies that, that cannot be escaped. That's why, beloved, there is no such thing, even in the context of prostitution, there is no such thing as meaningless sex. That's a nonsense phrase. All sex communicates meaning. Communicates the sharing of one person with another, and it is meant to point to, uh, in the context of marriage especially, where it's, where it's approved, it is meant to point to our communion with God. All sex is therefore meaningful. It may be twisted and distorted and abused, 
but it is never without meaning. And this is why this sort of sex that the culture talks about as, as meaningless sex or just hookup culture, this is why that hurts too. This is why people are broken doing that too. They're telling themselves a lie that what I do with my body doesn't have any meaning, but in point of fact, the meaning is written in the body itself. And so we lie with our bodies. We betray the meaning of sex with our bodies. We betray one another with our bodies in sexual immorality. And that's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that sexual immorality is defrauding each other. It is robbing one another, stealing from one another, deceiving one another, and that can never be life-giving. So we are meant to be as repulsed by the idea as we are hopefully repulsed by the idea of prostitution. It's because we are united with Christ. That's the second fact. Our bodies are joined with Christ. Here's the third fact. The body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We see that there in verse 19. Notice what the Bible says. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? A temple is where God lives and where God is worshipped. In Christianity, a temple is not a building. In Christianity, a temple, the temple, is your body and my body. Notice there, our our bodies have become a temple um, in whom God the Holy Spirit lives. God the Father and the Son have given to him, given him to us as a gift to live in us and to make our bodies the site of worship. These facts together, uh, these three aspects of the theology of body, notice they are, they are increasing in intimacy and contact with God. The first fact establishes that our bodies were meant for God. He owns them. But it's deeper than that. Our bodies are joined with Christ. We are united to him. And it's deeper than that, too. Our bodies is our God's house, his temple, in whom he lives. <laughs> I wish I could get my mind around this, but God is inside us. Every Christian living in you is the Lord of glory. Living in you is God, the Holy Spirit, fully God, making your body a temple. Every illustration of that is going to be trivial. But as I was thinking about that, I mean, the only way I could think to sort of illustrate that is with something as trivial as um, that television show, The Masked Singer. I don't know how many of you all watch that. I don't watch it because it kind of creeps me out, the mascots do. But, but you've got these people who come out in these full costumes, head to toe. And they look somewhat ridiculous sometimes. And, and they sing these cover songs, and you are left to try and guess who's inside them singing that song. And some of them, killer voices. 
And you watch and you see the costume, you see that outward appearance, but inside them is a celebrity. Inside them is some famous person. Inside them is someone belting out these beautiful lyrics. And Christianity, the the Christian, is something like this. We're in our bodies. Our bodies are these external presentation of ourselves, but inside us is a God of glory. Inside us is the the, the Lord of lords, the King of kings. Inside of us is the beautiful and the majestic and the powerful and the indescribable God of all creation. He is unveiling himself as we approach glory and will show himself in all of his glory, in us and through us. This is the theology of the body. We are meant for the Lord. We are joined to the Lord. And the Lord, by his spirit, lives in us. Can you see how this is meant to make sexual immorality unthinkable? This theology means that that. When we enter into a sexual relationship, whether whether it's the permissible and the holy relationship of the marriage bed, or when we enter into a sexual relationship which is sexual immorality with someone who's not our spouse, we are in some sense taking God with us into that activity. If the Spirit of God lives in our bodies and we are taking our bodies into sexually sinful, immoral Things we are taking our holy God into that activity. That's meant to the thought of that is meant to repulse us, make, make, make us step way back from sexual sin. And this is why I think Paul in verse 18 puts sexual sin in a different category from other sins. Notice what he says in verse 18. Every other sin uh, is it, every other sin is a a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. When we sin sexually, we do something unique to our physical selves. The other sins we do in the body, but they are outside of us in some way. But this sin, which we do in the body, is also against the body. It's against our very person. It's against the temple of the Lord. It's a desecration of his home. It's a rejection of God's ownership. It is an ignoring of our union with Christ. One commentator says that sexual immorality is a uniquely body-joining and body-defiling sin strikes at the Christian's core identity. It strikes at the the core theological meaning of the body. And so the states of sexual purity and chastity, celibacy, or monogamy and marriage, the stakes could not be higher. Christopher West writes this, the battle for man's soul is fought over the truth of his body. That's exactly right. If our bodies are theological signs, then what we do with our bodies is a battleground over the truth of this theological theological body. So what do we do in the way of application here? I think the main application here 
is to preach this theology to ourselves, to rehearse it, to get it deep down in the soul, and then to refuse to break apart the links in this theology. Each of those points, our bodies are meant for God, we are united with Christ in our bodies, and the Holy Spirit lives in our bodies. Those are like links in a chain that should never be broken apart. If we break them apart, then here's what happens. Sexual immorality becomes to us basically a matter of preference and personal morality. And, and if, we, if we break them apart, then uh, the, the sexual immorality becomes merely about satisfying our own lusts or our needs instead of satisfying God. So we've got to keep this theology linked together, and then we've got to have this theology uh, known and believed and shaping how we live. We don't want to break these truths apart. They, they define the truth about our bodies and what our bodies mean and about what sex means. And it's holding this truth and obeying this truth that puts us on the path to a pure and superior joy. Which brings us to our second point then. I want to give us three actions to safeguard the body and to safeguard sexual purity, sexual chastity. Uh, now, when we come to these three actions that the Bible gives us in the, in the text, um, I want to just sort of list them for us quickly, and then I want to get under the hood of them. All right? So here's the first action. Resolve, resolve to never commit sexual immorality. That's what I get from the last word in verse 15, where Paul says, Never. That word never at the end of verse 15 means to intentionally refuse to ever submit to sexual sin. It means to refuse to use our bodies and our freedoms in a way that would be A, unhelpful, or B, enslaving, or C, displeasing to God. Sexual immorality fails all three of those tests. Never. Give yourself to it. Resolve to use your agency to control your body in honor of God. Number two, we are then to flee from sexual immorality. So first we resolve, and then second we run. We should run away from sexual immorality as fast, and get this too, as far away as we can. Don't run fast and stay near the border. Run fast and get as far away as you can. We don't want to be like the young Augustine, uh, the North African theologian uh, in his 30s, struggling in this area uh, when he prayed, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. <laughs> Lord, give me, give me sexual uh, self-control, but not quite yet because I'm still out here dabbling. That's conflicted. That's, that's, that's not resolved. That's not never. You don't want to pray like that. Instead, we want to pray... The way Sam Alberry teaches us to pray in his book, Seven Myths About Singleness, when he writes this short prayer, Lord, please don't give me what I want. Give me what you want. Please don't give me what I want. Give me what you want. And then we should be like Joseph. We should get up from praying and run. Leave our clothes in the house of the sexually immoral woman and flee as the Bible teaches us. Number three. 
Resolve never to commit sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. Number three, honor God with your body. That's what we see in verses 19 and 20. Where we, are to, we are called in God's word. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That's the natural application of the fact that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit and that our bodies belong to God. So then our bodies become the site of worship. Our bodies become the, the place where we meet with God and honor God and exalt him and praise him and make his name great. Our bodies become the things that, that we use to ascribe beauty to God and worth to God. We worship him in the beauty of holiness. Those are the three actions, right? Easy to understand. Resolve never to commit sexual immorality. Flee sexual immorality. Honor God with your body. Now, those are simple enough to state. But I don't think they are very well understood. And I don't think that if you are struggling in this area, just having me list those things um, seem to you like, okay, that's how we do it, easy peasy, so on and so forth. And I don't want to encourage us to think about those three things as something we do as a matter of self-effort in our own power. And I don't want to encourage us to think about those three things um, in strategic terms. We need something more than that. We need to look under the hood of these three things to see something that, that needs to happen spiritually in order for us to even receive these three things with a welcoming heart, with a glad heart, and a joyful heart. So the words never and flee sexual morality and honor God with your body are not the same thing as legalistic, flesh-empowered law or rules. We know that because the same writer of this letter, Paul, writes what he writes in Colossians chapter 2, verse 23, where he says that human rules have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but... They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So Paul would say, now if you take my words and you make a bunch of rules, that might look wise to you and you might be you know, being tough with your body, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you those rules will not actually stop your sin nature. It would not stop, notice, the indulgence of the flesh. Not only will it not stop your nature, your sin nature, for asking for those things, it won't stop you from giving your sin nature what it wants. So we're going to need something more than rules. Something has to happen prior to the rules. We're not throwing away the rules. But there's something beneath them that gives them their power. So what we need is a gospel-motivated, spirit-empowered, change of our soul that determines the use and enjoyment of our bodies in a way that pleases God. It's the difference between an ethic and an ethos. An ethic and an ethos. Let me quote from Christopher West in his book, Our Bodies Tell God's Story, where he writes this, an ethic is an external norm or rule. 
So it's outside of us. It's an external normal rule. Do this, don't do that. Ethos refers to a person's inner world of values. Notice what attracts and repulses that person deep in the heart. So what we need is not another ethic, not another list of external rules, but what we need is a new ethos, a new internal ordering of our worlds, a, an internal ordering of our souls that, that actually then sort of attracts us to what is holy and repulses us from what is sinful. West continues by meditating on Jesus' command that, that we should not look on a woman with lust in our hearts. And he's sort of meditating about how difficult it would be to never lust after someone. How, how when we think about that, we might feel it's impossible. He writes this, it seems hopeless unless, unless it were possible to experience some kind of redemption or transformation of our desires. This is precisely where the gospel becomes good news. In other words, in the gospel, God offers us his son and he offers us salvation in his son. And that salvation begins with and includes transforming and reforming and renewing our desires. So that in Christ and the gospel, we have the power and the ability working inside of us to give us new desires and to take away the old. That's the internal transformation that we need not merely the external legislation and, reach and restriction. The real work has to happen at the level of desire in the heart. We quote Christopher West again. The gospel doesn't give us more rules to follow. The gospel is meant to change our hearts so that we no longer need the rules. To the degree that we experience this change of heart, we experience what the Bible calls freedom from the law. See Galatians 7, or excuse me, Romans 7, Galatians 5. This is a freedom not to break the law, but freedom to fulfill it. So when the gospel makes this change in a person's ethos, it does not feel like drudgery and slavery to obey God. When this change happens in the person, the, the person, as it were, has as their anthem 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, where John writes there, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. They have the heart of the psalmist in Psalm 119, who delights in God's law. That's the heart we want. <laughs> Can you imagine... Being so changed by a, des a desire for the righteousness of Christ that we no longer even need an external law to restrict us? That's what the Bible calls having the law written on our hearts. And in fact, that's what is promised in the New Covenant that we would have new hearts with God's law written on them. Our internal lives will be changed and our internal desires will be changed so that we gladly fulfill what God calls us to in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Christopher West uses a really great illustration for what this freedom from the law and this freedom to fulfill the law looks like. He writes, do you have any desire to murder your best friend? This may seem like an odd question, but it actually demonstrates the point. Assuming you do not, then you do not need the commandment, thou shalt not murder thy best friend, because you have no desire to break it. To this extent, you are free from the law. In other words, you do not experience this law, thou shalt not murder thy best friend, as an imposition. Why? Because your heart already conforms to it. Okay. That is how we want our hearts transformed and shaped. We want our hearts to so desire chastity and self-control and sexual purity that we don't need a bunch of rules to protect us from sexual sin because we have no desire for it. What we desire is Christ. We say, whom I have I in heaven but you? On earth there is none I desire but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you are my portion forever. That, that anthem, that song, that desire is driving us Godward and away from sin. Okay, that's the heart that we want. So that when we say never and we flee sexual immorality, and we attempt to honor God with our bodies, it's because our hearts want that more than anything. And that desire has broken the grip and the hole and the pool of sexual sin. So now let's think about this just a little bit more closely. Ask yourself a question. When it comes to sexual purity, sexual sin, where do you still need external rules, external laws? Where do you need to put up restrictions to keep you from sinning? Do you need a rule for certain kinds of things, right? holding hands, kissing, talking after 11 p.m., watching certain TV shows? Whatever it is, get that in mind. Wherever we need the rule, that's where we need transformation. Don't throw away the rule. You still need it. But don't leave your sanctification uh, to simply producing more rules because the Bible tells us that won't stop us from indulging the flesh. Wherever we need the rules, that's where we need to appeal to God to change us, change our desires, renew us, make us whole, make us clean, give us a new desire for him. It pushes out the desire for sin. So you may be still needing those rules. Don't throw them away. But let them guide you to recognizing where you need transformation. It's, yeah, last time we quote Christopher West. If this is where we find ourselves, needing the rules, the solution is not to toss out the law. The solution is to surrender our disordered desires to Christ and let him transform them. Is that what you need to do? Is surrender? To ask Jesus to transform your desires? in ways that you can't. 
That, that for many of us in many different ways is the key to sanctification. Is the key to growth in holiness. It's not by making more rules and developing more scruples and obeying those rules and scruples. Though that's not wrong, it's just not sufficient. The transformation we need is, is one that Christ gives inside when he renews our desires and changes our affections. I hope you'll pursue that. I hope you'll ask for that. And you'll lay your heart on the altar and say, Lord, take it. Do not give me what I want. Give me what you want. One last application here as we close. This is not something that you can delegate to other people. It's not something I can delegate to other people. So, so one of the things that I think I observe sometimes in Christians is um, they struggle in a particular area. Today we're talking about sexual sin, but it could be any area. And they recognize that the struggle is continuing. But they don't recognize that the struggle is continuing because their desires aren't changing. And so instead of addressing their desires, and sometimes it doesn't even occur to them that that's what they need to do, what they then begin to do is address external things and creating more rules and then looking for accountability partners to help them keep that rule. Now, this is why many of us are frustrated with the idea of accountability partners. It won't work. It's not how transformation occurs. Particularly if with our accountability partners and our friends, we're not talking about our hearts. We're not dealing with our desires. And sometimes people will go even so far as to quickly admit their sin and then blame the accountability partners or blame the lack of discipleship or blame the lack of teaching for their sin problem. No, beloved, you had the sin problem even before you became a Christian. No, the sin problem is for each of us to deal with each of us to test ourselves to see whether we're in the faith to work out our salvation in fear and trembling is for each of us to to go to Christ notice we each have the Holy Spirit living in us fellowship with him talk with him seek him in the word lay your heart before him in prayer yield yourself to his influence and his shaping Don't try to dial in. Don't try to delegate it. Well, beloved, take responsibility for your spiritual progress in holiness. Seek that change of heart, that change of ethos that Christ gives by his spirit. And if nobody else goes that way, let you and I go that way. You seek Jesus. You seek the Holy Spirit's influence and change if nobody else does. And I want to conclude this morning by just addressing those with us who are not yet Christians. You need to be changed too. I wonder if you've been thinking about your own desires for sexual immorality or some other kind of sin. That's evidence that you're a sinner. You desire wrong things, that makes you a sinner. And it's in your nature, it's in all of our natures ever since Adam's sin, because his sin has, has affected us all. And we're accountable to God for our sins. In fact, God owns our bodies. And what we do with our bodies um, actually is, a, is, a, is an infringement on God's ownership rights. 
And so we can either meet God as our judge or we can meet God as our Savior. And the only path to meeting God as our Savior is the cross of Jesus Christ who died for our sins. Every sexual sin, every illicit sexual desire, every other sin, he died for, to pay the penalty for. That's why he was crucified. But as our text says in verse 14, he was raised from the grave. And that resurrection proves that God accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. So that now, sinners though we are, we can come to God through Jesus Christ. And we can have a new life, and one day even a new body, wherein we can enjoy God forever, just as God intended. And so what God calls you to do is to receive this gift. Accept it. Confess your sins to God. Repent of your sin and ask for new desires. And follow God, follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior in faith. The reward for that is eternal life, eternal happiness, eternal holiness with God. We pray that you would accept that gift even now by praying to God and saying, I'm a sinner and confessing your sins specifically and asking God to give you grace to repent, that is to turn away from your sin and put your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior and follow him as your God, trusting him and obeying his word. That life, that decision, will never come back fruitless. It will always produce life. Do it today. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that your word would indeed feed us and keep us and guide us all the way home to glory. This body is yours. It's meant for you. It is united to Christ. And we marvel that you live in us by your spirit. And so we pray, help us, Lord, to honor you with our bodies as people purchased by the blood of your son. In Jesus' name.